Tonight's guest is Mitchell Northam, author of High School Basketball on Maryland's Eastern Shore, a shore hoops history. Mitchell grew up on the Eastern Shore of Maryland in Federalsburg and graduated from Colonel Richardson High School, Warwick Community College, and Salisbury University. His work has been featured at WUNC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, SB Nation, NCAA.com, the Orlando Sentinel, the Associated Press, The Next, Sports Illustrated, Inside MD Sports, Pittsburgh Sports Now, and the Delmarva Times. He is a member of the USA Basketball Writers Association and a voter in the AP Top 25 poll for women's college basketball. Mitchell lives in North Carolina with his wife, Rachel, and their cat, Clementine. And without further ado, we'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Mitchell Northam. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think that's uh, the first time someone's mentioned my cat in an introduction. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I, I took it right out of your book. And yeah. um, you know what? I'm, I'm glad that you you gave your, your, your cat some cred. So again, thanks for joining us. And, you know, Mitchell, at the beginning of each one of my shows, I really want our my audience to get to know my guest. And so I, I usually ask... To, to tell as much as you feel comfortable about your personal story, your professional journey. And so who is Mitchell Northam? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's kind of starts, you know, for me um, in my career as a journalist, um, you know, back at Colonel Richardson High School, um, kind of the first time I ever really got confidence as, as a writer um, was in Sia North's creative writing class my junior year. Um, after high school, uh, after I graduated from Colonel Richardson, I played football and track and field there, and I loved watching high school basketball. Um, and uh, went to Warwick Community College, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, thought I wanted to be a teacher, got a little taste of that, didn't really like it so much. Right. Um, I decided to kind of switch gears a little bit going into my second year there. Um, decided I wanted to try and give writing a try. Um, did pretty good in my English classes there and some other stuff. Uh, my dad kind of was the one who encouraged me to, you know, hey, if you want to do the sports writing thing, you know, on the side, you should, you know, be starting a blog or something like that. So, right. you know, this is in the early 2000s. So blogs are a big thing at that time, um, kind of really growing in popularity. So I started doing that. I had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, now looking back on it, I was really just getting reps. Um, sure. Few people saw, but, you know, it was it was reps for me. Yeah. Um, you know, my fingers at the keyboard, that, that sort of thing. Um, I graduated from Warwick. I go to Salisbury University. I can get involved with the student paper there. I start kind of picking up freelance writing gigs, you know, covering high school football and basketball for the Star Democrat and the Daily Times and SB Nation and DMV Elite, a couple other different websites here and there. Um, I uh, graduated from Salisbury in 2015 and about a week later started full time at the Daily Times in, right. in Salisbury as a as a general assignment reporter, um, you know, covered those first couple months were kind of crazy. You know, I was covering uh, murders and city council meetings yeah. and 
you know, kind of everything, uh, you know, that was that was happening in Salisbury. Um, That's great for your toolkit, and, right? You know, putting tools in your toolkit, all those experiences, right? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, covered covered a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. And uh, but, you know, I knew kind of in the back of my head that sports was always what I wanted to do. Um, and my bosses knew that, too. Um, so sure enough, you know, a few months later, we had an opening at the Daily Times when, um, you know, a guy who was kind of one of my mentors and was my editor, Sean Yonker, he decided to take a job at UMES, University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Um, so I just sort of slid into his role. Um, and I kind of became, you know, the one man sports department at the at the Daily Times, you know, covering not only all the Bayside schools, but, you know, Eastern Shore, Virginia, Southern Delaware. Uh, Getting those miles in on your tires, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I probably made more money in mileage than I did <laughs> actual salary. Um, so yeah, you know, I did that um, for about two years, and then, you know, I I lived on the Eastern Shore of Maryland for you know from the time I was five years old mm-hmm. to the time I was twenty five. Um, and after two years of the Daily Times, I was just kind of ready to experience something else. You know, I I stayed at home for college. Um, I stayed at home for my first job. So I was just kind of ready for for a new adventure. Um, And so I took a job down in Atlanta um, at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a sort of kind of the same thing as I started out at the Daily Times. I was a what was called a hyper-local reporter, Um, but it was really general assignment and kind of everything that was going on in North Fulton County, which is right north of Atlanta, a very kind of suburban sort of white collar area. Um, and that's a place where, again, I kind of covered a little bit of everything from, you know, crimes involving celebrities to city council meetings and, um, you know, courts um, and a little bit of sports here and there. You know, yeah. uh, I started freelancing again when I got down there because, you know, after a few months in, in the Atlanta job, um, after kind of getting that change of pace, going back to news, I realized again sports is is the thing that i love and the thing that i enjoy covering it's where my passion is at and um i utilized in covering sports um so i started dancing again started covering major league soccer for the orlando sentinel atlanta united the team down there um they ended up winning the mls cup that year that was pretty cool um so yeah i got to got to cover a lot of different stuff and then in October 2018, uh, my girlfriend, now wife, she got a job up here in in North Carolina in the Triangle in Chapel Hill. Um, She followed me to Atlanta, so I followed her up here. Um, And uh, I just started freelancing. Um, I didn't have a full-time job right away. You know, I stuck with the Orlando Sentinel and, you know, kept covering soccer, you know, being here in the triangle, I got to cover a lot of college basketball. Um, so it was just kind of working connections and making new connections to, to get work. I started doing kind of regular gigs for NCAA.com. Um, you know, kind of that brought me into sort of covering women's college basketball more often mm-hmm. when I started doing work for high post hoops and the next uh, started doing a little bit of work for Sports Illustrated covering the Hornets. Right. Um, so it kind of, you know, took me to all these different places. I've, I've gotten to do a lot of cool work. Um, and uh, everything was going great until March 2020. And then yeah. uh, the pandemic hit. Um, the world, the, that time kind of stood still and then it sped up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The last thing that I covered um, was the ACC tournament in Greensboro. And I kind of remember... 
you know, everybody was still sort of acting normal, but, you know, right. more people are using hand sanitizers. We're yeah. still really not sure what's going on. Uh, and then all of a sudden everything, you know, just comes to a stop. Yeah. Um, and when that happened, you know, all of my gigs, all these freelance jobs that I kind of relied on for, for steady work just sort of up and vanished. So, you know, we're in lockdown. I'm at home. I don't really know what to do with myself. I'm bored. I need to get a job. Um, but in the meantime, until I find a job, I need to find something that takes up my time. Uh, so that's how I came to write this book. Um, I started pulling books off my shelves. I emailed a couple publishers. I got one to say yes. And I was off to the races on researching uh, a book about high school basketball on the Eastern Shore. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because my, my brother wrote the foreword to your book, uh, Paul. Um, and Paul had called me and said, you know, Brian, this guy named Mitchell, he might, you know, want to call you and talk to you about the book um, that he, he's wanting to write. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then, you know, I, we, we did have a chance to, to chat, but I thought nothing of it. Um, I really thought that, you know, you're going to write this, you know, small book and just really kind of like a pamphlet and just give, you know, <laughs> to a few people. And then when you finish this book, Mitchell, and I looked at this book. <laughs> and it's upwards of 400 pages. And I, I had no idea the depth that you were going to go. I mean, you went, you know, 20,000 feet under the, the sea. I mean, you truly did go back into the early 1900s and talk about the beginning of basketball on Maryland's Eastern Shore from our women, our girls basketball teams who were really the powerhouses back then who won the first you know, state titles. Can you sure. kind of walk me through some of the early pieces that you wrote and how you got that information on some of the girls basketball teams that won those first state titles? And then we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the players. And I think in Paul's in Paul's uh, forward, he talks about, you know, the, the coaches are really the, the stars of the book. I mean, they really mm -hmm. the show. But there are a lot of fascinating stories that, you know, are in this book that I never knew about. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, you know, so when I first started writing um, or researching the book, rather, I, I sort of had an outline of, um, you know, a couple things that I knew I wanted to hit. Um, you know, one of those things was trying to find the first game that was ever played on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Um, and, you know, like you've read the book. So, the, you know, the best I could find was this game in 1914 between the high schools in Denton and Greensboro. Those high schools are long gone. They don't exist anymore. You know, every, everybody in Northern Carolina County goes to North High now. Um, but so that's the best I can find. So I knew that, that that was one thing that I wanted to make sure that I hit. Um, and I also knew that the first um, boys high school basketball champion on the shore was that 1952 Ocean City High team. Right. Um, but I wanted to make sure, you know, I knew that something had to happen kind of in that gap there. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I was just kind of being as, um, you know, thorough as possible. So, you know, I hop on newspapers.com and, you know, I have a whole box of research, you know, sitting in my closet now, you know, just full of papers and stuff. And I probably went through five cartridges, ink and all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, um, the, when I first started researching this book, the high school record book for Maryland public high schools didn't have um, those teams coached by uh, Mae Brooks and Ed Walter. Yeah. Uh, and those were, you know, the first girls teams to win state titles um, in 1947. Yeah. Um, 
they didn't have them in there. And I sort of just stumbled on them in my research. Um, and uh, I was, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, like I said, there was a lot of things that I wanted to hit in this book, but there's also things that I learned along the way that I just kind of, once I came upon them, I was like, well, I have to write about this. I have to dig into this a little bit more. And, um, you know, so those two girl teams winning those state titles in 47, Eastern and Cambridge, um, I knew that that was something I had to zero in on. Sure. And then kind of a couple months later, um, as I'm going and researching the book more, um, Maryland, they they updated their record books online. And Eastern oh, really? were in there. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, so... <laughs> Um, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, you know so, what? Yeah. One of the things, you know, Mitchell, that I don't know if a lot of people know is that, you know, girls basketball back then was very different, right? You know, I mean, they didn't, you know, they play, played in sections of the court. They didn't go, you know, certain, you know, girls would stay on this section and certain girls would stay on the other section. Yeah, yeah. It was really more, um, it's it's kind of like how modern lacrosse is played, yeah. you know, how some players don't cross on the other side of the field. Um, yeah, so there's there's six players in girls basketball back then. They played six on six. Um, you had, you know, two forwards who played on one end of the court. They were the offensive players. You had yeah. two guards who were your defensive players. And then you had two in the middle who could kind of rove a little Bro, bit. Yeah. Um, and you were only, I think, supposed to take two dribbles before either passing or shooting. Um, so there were a lot of kind of crazy rules in Maryland, actually played by those rules up until 1969, 1970, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, across the country, um, Iowa and Oklahoma was playing by those rules until the 90s, which is pretty crazy. They were kind of the last two holdouts. Wow. wow. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, girls basketball was uh, a lot different back then than it is now. Yeah. And, and so when we go and we start to move forward in your book and we talk about <laughs> – um, some of the changes because you know the state basketball tournament was not integrated um, really until <clears throat> the late 50s or actually early 60s right and so um, talk about how you you know wrote about the, the state tournament but then I, I really appreciate how you did justice to the black schools and really honored the the the, the, the actual the, the great players that were there and you had to research because in your book you said a lot of the newspapers and people really didn't know about some of the black schools yeah yeah there was um you know levi fontaine is probably one of the you know five or ten best players ever from the eastern shore yeah Played at Somerset High School um, in in the 1960s. Won back-to-back -back state titles. Mm -hmm. Goes to Maryland Eastern Shore, and he's awesome there. And then he gets drafted by the Warriors. So he's you know one of one of three Eastern Shore guys ever to get drafted by an NBA team. Um, and as I'm doing my research, you know, I just kind of noticed. You know, I know this is a guy that I need to write about him being one of the few NBA players from our area. Right. Um, you know, and his it's it's it was extremely hard to find a picture of him in the newspaper um, because back then, you know, just everything wasn't equal. Um, and, and the coverage is included in that. And the coverage was not equal. Um, you know, the teams kind of grabbing the headlines and the, the kind of prime spots in the Daily Times and the Star Democrat um, and the Baltimore Sun, even too. you know, yeah. where your Chris Fields and your Y highs and right. um you know, Pokemokes and stuff like that. The the schools that were majority white, uh, maybe some of them had integrated a bit by then, sure. um, but certainly, for the most part, the the all black schools just didn't get the love 
um, and the coverage that they that they should have gotten really from um, the media back then. So yeah, I wanted I wanted to make sure that that those guys got their due in the book, um, the Levi Fontaines and the Cal- Talvin Skinners and the Walt Hazards. Yeah, you know when you when you say that because you know it's, I always you know I was telling my my daughters the other day this this six degrees of separation is is real because there's always a connection. You know when you talk about Walt Hazard and Moton High School, my mom went to Moton High School. Me and my mom. Oh wow. Like the, because we're we're from Easton, that's where I was born, that's where Paul was born, and so there's always this connection, and 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 the the great things that you shared about Walt Hazard and and you know going on to UCLA and then playing in the NBA and 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 coaching as well, and so those connections are are huge. But th- then you talk deeply about a number of uh, women coaches who I, I I was familiar with, and especially. Um, when I was, when I was playing, because I think, you know, um, Barbara McCool in, at Mardella was really, you know, big time when I was still in high school and, and, and she was a very, 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 you know, and I, I remember her as, as a tough coach, um, but they were always very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another, you know, another kind of group of people um, that I wanted to make sure got their due was you know, the women and, you know, because I mean, Tia Jackson and Kelly Gibson, um, talking yeah. about women players, I mean, they're, they're as good or maybe even better than any man that's come from the Eastern Shore, you know, both of them played in the WNBA, both of them played in college at the highest level, Kelly won two state titles as a as a high school player, Tia yeah. scored a boatload of points um, when she was yeah. at Marshall. But yeah, and the coaches too. Um, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I wrote about Brenda Jones, who was at Snow Hill for a long time um, and kind of sort of, ushered in, you know, that modern era of girls basketball that we talked about when she first got to Snow Hill, they were still playing six on six. And then her second year was when things kind of came into the more modern rules, the, the rules that the boys played by. And Jones was a little bit ahead of her time, you know, to, to toughen up her girls. Um, you know, she was using boys in her practice. I mean, that's a thing that, that women's college coaches do now. And she was doing it in high school in the 70s. Um, but yeah, Brenda and, and Barbara McCool and, and Gail Gladding, um, these are three coaches that um, you know, won a lot, a lot, a lot of games um, in, in their days and coached and impacted tons of lives. Um, what was the, the theme when you, when you talk to people, what was the theme that, or a common theme um, with those, those women's, those girls coaches in terms of not just the, the basketball, because the basketball is, is, is important, but in terms of um, influencing lives? Yeah, I think, I think the, I think it was tough love, you know, all three of those coaches, whenever I talk to one of their players or another coach that knew them, um, you know, they always say, Oh, she was, she was tough. Um, you know, she was, she was hard on her players, but she loved them. Um, and that's especially true of, of Barbara McCool. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think of Barbara McCool, if they haven't played for her, or they didn't know her very well. They think of her as kind of this tyrant on the sideline and right. this, this hard coach. And she was very tough and, and hard on her players, but you know, I talked to Tia Jackson for a long time. And um, I mean, Tia was very adamant that, you know, she wouldn't be where she was if it wasn't for Barbara McCool, you know, back in, back in those days, when Tia is coming up in the late 80s, early 90s, there is no social media, there's, you know, the scouting network for women's basketball is really not, you know, as evolved as it was for the men's game. 
So Barbara McCool is driving Tia Jackson, you know, to camps up to Syracuse, down to Knoxville, to Virginia. And eventually Tia becomes this great prospect by the time she's a junior and senior. And, you know, Pat Summon and Muffet McGraw are coming to Mardella to watch her play. Um, That doesn't happen, happen, yeah, without Barbara McCool. Um, You know, Barbara McCool is cutting up tape for Tia and sending it out to all these coaches. Um, So, yeah, I mean – tough but really really cared um deeply about about her players you know i think one of the things that i always um you know push back you know when i when i hear people talk about coaches in a certain way and and you you just said it i don't think people realize the miles that coaches put you know outside of the court to help the players you know personally um to, to do well beyond basketball or beyond the sport you know, the, 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 just the example that you talk about, you know, her going all over the place to try to get her seen. I mean, it's the same thing with Coach Waller with me. You know, I was, you know, a decent player, but nobody knew about me because I was on the Eastern Shore. So Coach Coach Waller was calling everybody, right? And then, he, you know, he was, you know, calling lefty to try to get me into five-star basketball camp. He was mm-hmm. taking me, driving me to Old Dominion to play in a camp because he wanted Oliver Pinnell, another person you wrote about who my dad taught, um, to um, see me play because Oliver's, Oliver was the assistant coach at Old Dominion at the time. And so all the stuff that these coaches do to try to help their kids be successful, it's just beyond what people really understand. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of coaches that were like that. You know, I tell a story um, in the chapter I wrote about Grayson Hurley, you know, he had this van with like bald tires on it. And, you know, I mean, he would take kids not just from Cambridge, but, from yeah. Colonel, from Pocomoke. I mean, these coaches, a lot of them, you know, in the 90s and the 80s worked together to make sure that the players from here got seen, you know. So it, whether it was Grayson Hurley and David Bird driving a boatload or, you know, a van load of kids across the bridge or Hurley and, and Alan Miller or Merrill Morgan, you know, a lot of these guys worked together to make sure that they were putting their kids in the right position, you know, kind of rivalries and stuff like that aside. Sure. You know, in your book, um, at the end, in your, um, there's a section that you have um, about, you know, best of the rest. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really actually stood out to me was you, you put a writer in there who I knew very well. I mean, just in terms of he covered us, Cliff Mister. You know, after, you know, seeing all the basketball players and coaches, you put a writer in there, which I think was really powerful. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was important to mention Cliff um, because, you know, when I talk to kind of these these older coaches of a certain era, you know, the Wallers and the David Birds and, yeah. and the Merrill Morgans, they, they all of them talked about Cliff Mister, how they yeah. would just, you know, they would call him up every night um, to see how the other teams did. Um, and they would call him up to deliver their own scores. And um, you know, Waller and Bird uh, both kind of used him to get scouting reports on other teams. And, <laughs> I can see you know, how did so and so do? Do I have to prepare for him? All this stuff. Um, yeah. But, you know, so Cliff was one of the first, I think, journalists you know around the Eastern Shore to really put an emphasis on basketball and and make sure that that basketball was getting you know the same amount of coverage or even more than than a lot of the other sports. Um, you know, the, the pages of the Daily Times and the Dorchester Banner and the other places he worked were kind of filled up with basketball when he went there. Um, you know, the all-star game is named after him now. Um, yeah. So yeah, he was really kind of an important figure and fixture around the sport. 
um, for a long time there um, in a really important era. Um, and, you know, it, it was a big help to my research. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really uh, appreciate about your book, you you have so many people in here. It's amazing. And, and, and I know you, I've watched some of your your interviews and you say there's no way you could cover everything you i mean even though you've covered a lot there's no way you can get every single person because some people might be saying oh i should be in there but but one of the things that you do is you 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 give a along the way you give props to a lot of different people you know one of the things i i saw in you know one of the chapters you talked about um sharon mills but you were talking about you know him in context to you know playing other schools and one of those schools was mardella and Mardella at the hot time in 1987, 88, I believe it was, Ron Wainwright, you know, took them from like zero or one win to actually, you know, playing for like a conference final or something like that. Yeah. So he really is, a, you know, Ronnie is, again, I call him Ronnie because Ronnie was Paul's year and, and Ron played for Bennett. And he was one of our rivals, but we were very good friends back in the day. We used to, he used to come and pick us up, you know, in his Jeep. And we used to go play at North Lake Park in, in Salisbury. And so, but I, I, I appreciate you giving props to different people who may not normally get them. They didn't win a state championship, but you, you saw and you highlighted the, the improvement and the coaching ability of somebody who really took his school. It's Mardella in terms of women, girls basketball is powerhouse. In terms sure. of boys basketball, not traditionally, but you gave him those props, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was, I mean, part of the reason why I thought it was important to write about him was, um, you know, when I interviewed Nick Purnell for the book, who mm -hmm. was a starter on that Snow Hill team in, in 89 when they won states that had Sharon Mills on it, he, you know, was like, that That Ron Wainwright, Mardella team, we were, we were worried about those guys. Like, they yeah. were... They were, you know, the the second best team or one of the best, you know, on, on the Bay side that year. Um, and yeah, they had this kind of incredible turnaround from from one year to the next. And Ron kind of built up that program that's probably as good as Mardell has been at boys basketball in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe he won coach of the year. And yeah, that was I think that playoff game that they played against Snow Hill, that was either a regional final or semifinal. Yeah. I'd have to go final. back and look. Yeah, but, final. Um, yeah, it was it was a great team for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I was able to kind of find a picture of him in the Mardella yearbook. So, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to make sure that, you know, there, there's some figures and players and teams that maybe didn't win at all, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone kind of sort of got their due as I kind of went along. You know, one of the things um... – that I really appreciate is, is you really getting into some of the personal stories that really share how people have come out of struggles. You know, I had Greg Bosman on my show and we talked about, you know, his journey and where he is today. And I think, you know, what he does for kids because of his journey is amazing. Um, you know, you have Andre Collins, who does a lot in the community um, in, in Chrisfield. Can you talk a little bit about Andre in terms of, you know, his journey from, Maryland to going to a different school to then playing overseas, but he's really seems like um, somebody who really got the most out of his, his skills. Yeah. Yeah. Andre is a guy um, who, when I was working at the daily times, um, he was holding his youth basketball camp for the first time back home. Right. Um, so that's where I met him at. He was still, I think, I think he had one more year of professional ball in him and he went and played and then he came back and started coaching right away. Yeah. Um, so this is a guy I think, you know, my kind of read on him is, and he might've even said this to me is, you know, the game of basketball is, has kind of given him so much, right. You know, 
wins a state title at Chris Field, wins a national championship at Maryland, um, goes to Loyola. He's one of the top scorers in the country and then kind of has this long, um, you know, really great career overseas, um, you know, in Italy and Spain and all these places, um, you know, kind of gets to see the world because of basketball and um, has an awesome career. And now, you know, through the game, he's kind of trying to get back. Um, You know, he coached for a while at Bennett and then at Chris Field. Um, He's got like a training clinic going on. Um, So his story is a really great one of, you know, someone who, really values and has appreciated the game and, and what it's given him. And now he's trying to give back to his community, the sure. community that he grew up in, not just Chris field. You know, I think he told me, but you know, the Eastern shore as a whole, um, yeah. he really views his, his coach at Chris field, Phil Rayfield as, as a, as a role model, sure. um, you know, someone who kind of tried not to just help kids in Chris field, but kids all over. Um, and I think Andre is trying to do that. Um Really good guy, um, really great basketball player. And, uh, yeah, his his story was definitely one that I wanted to highlight. And I kind of organized the chapter I wrote on him. You know, parts of it are is kind of a narrative that I write. And then part of it is just our interview and our back and forth because I, I sure. felt um, kind of his words, you know, verbatim and in full were, were important for people to read. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, one of the people who I was fascinated with was Brenda Jones in Snow Hill. And I know we mentioned her a little bit, but just kind of talk about, you know, what she meant to, you know, that program, because they, they really were good. Um, and, you know, how many people she influenced, not just women, she influenced a lot of coaches in the area. I heard Coach mm-hmm. Paul talking about her. Yeah, so Brenda Jones, like I said earlier, was kind of the first sort of modern um, in the modern era of girls basketball, the first real winner, um, you know, won a ton of games at Snow Hill, takes Snow Hill to the state final in, in 73. And at that time, you know, they have to get through, it's not classifications. It's the whole state. Yeah. In one, in it's one like Indiana used to, is Indiana still that way, but it used to be that way. Or you can, I know it used to be, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure, but right. yeah, so that's how it was for girls in Maryland back then. And then of course, you know, she goes on to win a state title in 79, but you know, along the way, yeah, wins, wins a ton of games and really turns, I know we think of Mardella and, and Pocomo as these girls basketball kind right. of powerhouses, but the first one was really Snow Hill. Um, and yeah, you know, along the way, I think influenced a lot of players, you know, two of her players went on to be great coaches. Um, one of them across the bridge and one of them right here on the Eastern shore. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think for the most part, I think if you're building a Mount Rushmore of girls basketball coaches on the shore, she's on it. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's a, there's a Gail Gladding without Brenna Jones, um, so yeah, she was she was really great to talk to. She was one of my last interviews that I did for the book. Um, I was able to kind of find her through Facebook and right. really enjoy talking with her. Um, and she kind of came to the Eastern Shore by accident, you know, from from West Virginia. You know, yeah. she had never even seen the ocean before she she came to Snow Hill. So um, pretty pretty crazy. But yeah, an influential coach. You know, tough. You know, had had a rivalry with Barbara McCool back in the day. Um, and like I said, ahead of her time in terms of the way that she practiced and using boys in her practices. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I read and I, I mentioned Oliver Purnell um, a little bit earlier, 
But I, I actually did not realize um, that Ward Lambert was the high school coach at Stephen Decatur. I just I remember Ward Lambert from Salisbury University, Salisbury State back then because I was uh-huh. in high school and I didn't make I forgot that connection. And so that was amazing that and I didn't realize that he played at the University of Virginia. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Ward, um, you know, that 1970 Ocean City team, I think, is an important one in sort of the history of high school ball on the shore because it's it's kind of one of, you know, the first, um, you know, teams that was fully integrated to, yeah. to win a state title. Um, you know, in, in 1970, Worcester County schools were not fully desegregated right. yet. Um, you know, Worcester High was still playing, but, you know, these, uh, you know, this group of, of young men, you know, Oliver Prinnell included and Al Hondo Handy and a couple others, you know, they were the first ones to integrate Stephen Decatur. And yeah, they go on this run under Ward Lambert and and win the state title. And then, you know, a lot of those guys played college ball and then Ward sort of used that as a, as a stepping point to Salisbury University where he ended up coaching for almost 30 years, I think. And, you know, became kind of probably one of the best D3 coaches, certainly in the area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about who I, I think we all think is the Dean of coaches, men's coaches, at least for sure. Sure. My, my former coach, you know, Butch Waller, who is getting close to 900 wins now. I mean, and he's still, still ticking. And so tell me a little bit about your relationship to, to Butch and in the book you, you talk about kind of just soaking it up, you know, sitting in his office and just listening and seeing all the things on the wall and him being so meticulous and just talk about your, your relationship with him and, and, what your thinking is in terms of all the things you've heard about him and just observing him up close. Yeah. So, um, you know, Butch was kind of, I think one of the first coaches I ever really covered and um, I'm just so appreciative of, of him and kind of the access he gave me, um, you know, treating me like everybody else, you know, yeah. like the guys from WBOC and the star Democrat and the daily times. Um, and he was just so gracious with his time all the time. Um, and yeah, you know, whenever I got to cover a game a lot high, I knew it meant that I'm going to spend an hour after the game, just sitting in Butch's office, looking at all the things, you know, on the wall and talking with him and, you know, probably helping him update his, his charts and stuff with the record and everything. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, you know, everyone I talked to, I think Doug King said it best, um, you know, maybe not the best at X's and O's or maybe not the best at motivation, um, but he is the most prepared. Um, he's prepared for everything. Just that's just how he works. Um, and, you know, talking with him for this book, I thought I had a good grasp of, of what kind of guy Waller was and right. um, what what I, w- I might learn about him. But I, I was kind of surprised at sort of coming to some of the points that I came to and some of the things that he told me, you know, I think he really viewed basketball as a challenge. Um, You know, when he first gets to Y high, he wants to coach football spots, not available. So he takes baseball and baseball just comes easy to him. He's great at coaching baseball right away. Um, Varsity basketball was a struggle for him. His first couple of Y high teams were not clicking things weren't going the wrong way um and then he starts going to these camps that are put on by morgan wooten who great coach at Matha. um and then that sort of turns waller into the coach that he becomes and and is today the one that is super meticulous that is ultra prepared 
that is in Y High's gym, you know, until nine o'clock every night, whether or not there's a game or not going on. The guy who's getting in his truck and riding down to see Pokemo play Parkside on a Wednesday night if Y High's off, um, you know, just yeah, meticulous and prepared and saw basketball as a challenge and just fell in love with winning. I think, you know, uh, I think at the end of that chapter, you know, I asked him sort of how he kind of approaches coaching and he's just like, you know, I want to have fun and I want to win something. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there, there's some, some coaches that are, you know, they don't care about the wins and stuff as much, but Waller wants to win. He really likes winning. It's well, winning is fun. well and, I, and I think, you know, if anybody's in sports and they don't want to win, then you shouldn't be in sports. And again, yeah. there, there is a way to win and there's a way to lose. And, you know, I think when we, we, we won, we tried to, you know, as, as much as possible win with honor. And when we lost, you lose with honor as well. And that, that included our double overtime state, you know, championship loss um, in my senior year. And, and, but he, um, and again, in my opinion, and again, you you kind of confirmed it, you know, with the the audience, he truly is meticulous. But I think he's a really good X and O coach. And oh, I, yeah, th- I, sure. think, I think um, you you can you can be a motivator in a certain way. He's not a rah rah person, but you can be a motivator by being so meticulous and being so prepared. That actually gives players motivation because they're like, oh we can do this because we are ready. We've seen this in practice. We've gone over and over and over it and um, we are ready. And that's, that's motivation in itself. I think one of the things that um, I have learned over the years is that he will not stop because he loves basketball so much. And he really is about at the end of the day, he's about winning, but he's about influencing young men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I, I sort of came to the same conclusion that, um, you know, Waller kind of jokes uh, with me and some other people, you know, oh, one night they'll just, the janitor will sweep me oh, up with the yeah. rest of the trash and that'll be that. And I I mean, maybe, maybe so. Um, I, I don't know that he'll, as long as he's in good health, I, no. I don't imagine him stopping coaching. Um, he's a guy who, um, you know, is, is about routines, very, you know, routine regimented, you know, I talked to him during the pandemic and he was kind of at this point, sort of like I was before I started working on the book where he really didn't know what to do with himself because sure. he couldn't get into the Y high gym and he couldn't go do the things he was used to doing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, he, he definitely is, I think a great X's and O's coach as well. Um, and he's a guy as I wrote sort of later on, who kind of adapted his playing style a little over time, you know, when he yeah. has those late 90s, those late 90s teams with Doug King and, and Jamal King and a couple others, um, he goes to Ward Lambert and says, hey, I want you to come teach your kind of UNLV running right. rebel style of offense yeah. that run and run to us. Um, and that's the kind of system that propels him to that state title in 02. Yeah. You know, that 96, 97 team, they were great at it. And then that 02 team sort sure. of perfected the system. Um, and Waller, of course, is famous for those kind of zone presses that, yeah. that he likes to do on defense. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, like you said, the the dean of coaches on the shore um, loves loves to win. And he's won more than anyone else. And, and he's impacted tons of lives. Yeah. Was there any story um, that you wrote that 
um, really was hard to write. I know that Carlton Dobson is was was a, a challenging story. Uh, can you kind of recap that? But were there any other ones that were hard to write or or just really got to you? Yeah, the the I'll talk about the Carlton Dotson one for a bit. Um, that was definitely a challenge because that one, you know, there is a big part of that chapter that is about basketball um, yeah. and about how Northchester North Dorchester won that state title in 1999. You know, they had a great team, um, and Carlton Dotson in his time was one of the best players on the Eastern Shore. Um, they had a couple other really good guys on that team. Reggie Parker, Vic Burns was the head coach. Grayson Hurley was his assistant. Um, so, I mean, that team in itself was was a great story. Um, but I wanted to make sure kind of when I was writing this book, if I'm going to write the history of something, yeah. I have to kind of write the good and the bad. And yeah. unfortunately, there is a little bit of bad with high school basketball on the Eastern Shore. And I was really interested in the Carlton Dotson story right. um, because it's one that, um, as I kind of say in the introduction of that chapter, people on the shore just don't really talk about him yeah. and don't talk about that incident hardly ever. I, right. It's it's pretty rare that that conversation is kind of just comes up organically. Um, I think I think there's a little bit of shame, um, a little bit of embarrassment, you know. For, it's hard. For think people. about. I mean, think about if you know the people that you write about in the book. They were hometown heroes, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you leave the Eastern Shore, people are bragging about you. They're so proud of what they produced. And then something happens. And then, it, like you said, it's, it really is a bit embarrassing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that that it was included, because like I said, you know, when he was playing, you know, I talked to Andre Collins about him because Andre was on an AAU team with him. Um, okay. You know, he was he was as good as anyone. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, just um, bad things happened at Baylor. He, he yeah. made some poor decisions and, uh, you know, he's he's suffering the consequences yeah. for that. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to make sure that that, that story is included. Um, it, it's really a crazy story when you sort of get into not only, um, you know, the murder of his teammate, but then the coach um, who tried to cover it up. Yeah. And everything yeah. that happened to Baylor. Um, and then that whole rebuilding process, and now they just won the national championship, you know, yeah. two seasons ago. Kind of crazy. Um, so that was that was definitely one that was hard to write, just kind of from that perspective, getting people to talk about it. Super gracious, grateful um, for Vic Burns, who was Carlton's coach, and Will Graves, who was an AP writer now in Pittsburgh, but worked for the Star Democrat back then and covered uh, Carlton and some of those teams and, and Andre and some of the other people I talked to, um, other chapters that were hard to write. Um, I mean, there was, there was definitely, you know, I really enjoyed, um, writing the chapter that's about the 1976 state final, because that was a story that I didn't know about that. I just sort of landed on during my research. It wasn't something that I identified early on, um, but it's the only time two teams from the Eastern Shore against each other. You know, met for yeah. all the marbles yeah. at Cole Fieldhouse, um, Pocomoke and Colonel Richardson. And so because Colonel Richardson was involved, it kind of gave me the chance to sort of explore some of my roots a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. three, three generations of my family have graduated from Colonel Richardson High School. So I got to kind of explore, you know, how the school came about. Um, 
And then I got to dive deep into Merrill Morgan, um, who unfortunately just passed away recently. Oh, wow. Um, but I got the chance to talk to him um, last summer. Mm -hmm. um, he he battled Parkinson's disease for probably, I think, 19 years. Wow. Um, but wow. yeah, just passed away about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Um, but I, yeah, I got the chance to talk to him on the phone for a long time. Um really great guy you know there was he's he's the only coach other than waller who has 500 wins yeah. um for boys basketball so you know won a ton of games and i got to kind of explore his career a little bit um and some of the great guys that he coached and all the lives that he impacted and um so you know in hindsight now i'm really thankful i guess that i got the chance to do that um and really grateful i've heard a lot of great words from his family and stuff over the past week and a half sure how how thankful they were that that I was able to write about him and in, in this book and how you know there's always going to be sort of a record of of his legacy and a memory of him and and that's quite a tribute to to him and so I'm, I'm sure they were thankful to you yeah. um, what's next for you um how's the book selling how I, I see you everywhere I know you <laughs> you're trying to get it out there um and and how's it being received yeah, yeah, I think I think for the most part, um, you know, I've heard pretty positive things so far. Um, the book sales are okay, you know. Um, I, I ended up going the self-publish route, and I've I've beyond broken even on that, sure. so that's good. Um, you know, so I didn't expect this book to make me rich or anything, but you know, it's the sales are doing okay. Um, and yeah, I think the reception has been pretty good. I think for me, the most kind of rewarding things so far have been you know like hearing from Merrill Morgan's family about yeah. you know how how happy they were that I was able to write about you know their dad and uh all that in the book you know I heard from Grace and Hurley's daughter um you know I yeah never met her before in my life and unfortunately I didn't get the chance to meet Grace and Hurley um he died um in 2004 I think but um, I talked to a lot of people about him in the book, um, and she was very thankful that I wrote about her dad. She was like, I don't know how you did this, but you nailed him. You got my dad. Um, you know? and, and you did, because I like a lot of the people that you you talk about, um, Mitchell, a lot of the coaches, again, I played against, you know. And so, you know, Merrill and, and Grayson, I played against them. And so when yeah. when you you know wrote about them, it really was like nostalgic. It was like, oh my gosh, I remember. And my my first memory of, of Grayson was when I was a freshman. We played in the region final, and and they were stacked. I mean, they were really good. Now we were a decent. We, no, I shouldn't say we were a decent. We were a good team. I mean, my brother was the leading scorer. We had Jackie Wall. Scott Smith was a great basketball player at uh, at Salisbury you know, State, Salisbury University now, and Marcus Carr. Um, but they were just better. Um, but Grayson was just so I remember after the game, he came up and I was a freshman. He said, you're going to go somewhere, young man. I remember him. He was such a decent person. Yeah, yeah, I, I really wish he's he's someone, you know, after kind of writing this book and, you know, writing about people I didn't get the chance to meet. He's really someone I, I would have loved to, you know, hang out with for an hour. Or, you know, you know you meet somebody who's like larger than life. That's that's how. Yeah. He Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, what's been, I think the coolest thing, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this call, you thought, you know, the book might be like a pamphlet or whatever, instead of the 400 page thing that <laughs> yeah. you got, um, you know, if I, had, if I had stuck with the publisher that I had originally agreed to do this with, it, it might've been that, um, that was kind of one of the reasons I went the self-publisher out is because, 
when I turned the manuscript in, they're like, well, you know, this is really great, but we only publish books at this certain length. And they wanted to cut two thirds of the book just to kind of meet this arbitrary sort of word count. And I, I just felt like at that point, having done all the work, I just felt like it would have been a disservice to not only the work I did, but the people whose stories I'm trying to tell and the people that I interviewed and gave their time to me. I mean, this is, you know, this, these are people who have never really had their stories told before. Um, And so even, even if it cost me something, I wanted to make sure that it got out there in full in total. Um, And uh, yeah, I just hope that people enjoyed it. And it seems for the most part, like they have so far. It's really good. And, and it, I don't care if you're from the Eastern shore of Maryland or not, this book is an excellent book and it will actually take you through this journey of, you know, people's lives and, and the history of, of basketball, not just on the Eastern shore, because when you start making the connections to women's basketball in the, in the early 1900s and men's basketball, and then through integration, it really is kind of like, um, a, a, a really a revelation of like who we are. Uh, again, as a as a country, we're evolving, and um, Thank you. the things that you you share are just um, really uh, deeply um, heartfelt. And I, I really, you know, believe that um, when somebody reads this book and they read all the different stories, they're going to come away with not just uh, an idea that this was a basketball book. This is a human interest book because all the different coaches and the players, it, it really was just fascinating, Mitchell. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I hope so. I hope that people read it and like it. Um, yeah, I've gotten the chance to do a couple little events back on the shore. Um, got to do a little thing with the Talbot Historical Society. That was fun. Um, I've been at a couple events here and there trying to sell a couple copies. I'm going to do something with the Federalsburg Historical Society in October, I think. And then um, I'm going to be at the Governor's Challenge in December um, trying to trying to sell some. Um, and then, yeah, I, as far as what's next for me, I'm, um, I'm working at WUNC, which is North Carolina Public Radio here in Chapel Hill. Um, so I'm writing and producing stories here. Um, and maybe there's another book in the future. We'll see. Hey, well, um, I've written a book and it was like 300 pages and, and almost 400 pages. I mean, it, I need like a break of like 10 years <laughs> for my book. So, um, Congratulations again. Um, I appreciate you uh, giving me a call and, and sharing a little bit of my story, but sharing so many people's stories um, because it really is the story of Maryland's Eastern Shore and the proud story of the proud people that we are from the Eastern Shore and all the great things that, you know, you know, just, you know, when you talk about those people, it's not just those people, it's really talking about the people of the Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. is. And so, um, at the end of each one of my, my podcasts, I, I, I share a quote that I shared with um, people at my dad's funeral. It says, as I go, I am wearing you, meaning that every time I meet somebody or somebody really influences me, I put them on my back because they're part of my story. And so Mitchell Northam is now a part of my story. So I am wearing you, friend. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's kind of you to say. All right. And so thanks again for joining us on A Conversation with Brian. And we'll talk to you very soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Mitchell.